0: Hi everyone, welcome to the San Diego News Fix. I'm Christy Totten. Nelvin C. Cepeda has been to Afghanistan seven times in his 30 years as a photographer for the UT. He'll share his experiences with us. Then columnist Charles T. Clark shares his take on the guilty verdict in the trial of Derek Chauvin. First, the news. San Diego County's home price continued its historic rise in March, reaching a record high of $680,000. The median home price, which includes new and resale homes, has increased 15.3% in a year, according to CoreLogic. San Diego was not alone with new peaks being reached across Southern California and much of the nation in the same time period. Analysts say the factors driving the increase include a lack of homes for sale mixed with high demand, continued low mortgage rates, and improved finances while many work from home. San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria on Tuesday announced the city will boost internet access in low-income neighborhoods with free wireless service, city-sponsored hotspots, and laptops that can be checked out from libraries. The $500,000 program aims to bring Wi Fi to 300 new locations and provide city libraries 900 new mobile hotspots and hundreds of new laptops. The program is called SD Access for All. It's a trade off for reduced library services, as Mayor Gloria outlined in his proposed city budget. Temperatures in San Diego County will drop significantly below average by the middle of the week, according to the National Weather Service. Sunday's high at San Diego International Airport reached 82, 16 degrees above average. Temperatures hit 77 on Tuesday before falling to 67 on Wednesday and 63 on Thursday and Friday. The seasonal average is 66. There's a chance of widespread drizzle on Wednesday night and early Thursday. Nelvin C. Cepeda is a staff photographer at the UT and has been for 30 years. In that time, he's photographed the Super Bowl, Republican and Democratic National Conventions, visits by presidents, the LA riots, the migrant caravan, and more. He's also covered war in the Middle East, and he's been to Afghanistan seven times over the course of his career to photograph the conflict for the UT. This past Sunday, a reflection Nelvin wrote ran on the front page, along with some of his photos. So now, can you take me back to um, October 2005, the first time you landed in Afghanistan? Uh, What were your what were your first impressions?
1: I was in Pakistan and I was excited to board a plane heading for Afghanistan. And once we flew over Afghanistan, you, you had you have to picture these rolling hills and mountainsides and and mud homes everywhere. And then as we got closer to Kabul, you could see a city with hotels and hard structure buildings. And then the plane lands and you realize, you know, we haven't pulled up to a gate. We're parked out in the middle of the runway and we're expected to deboard. And you realize maybe this place is not the safest place. And, and and I say that because you're, you're told that the reason why the planes don't pull up to a gate is in case they have to leave. They'll just stay on the runway and take off right there. And so then you finally get into the airport where you have to clear customs. And it's clear that the airport was recently or at some point under attack because the fluorescent lights were hanging from the ceiling. Walls had signs of blast in it. Uh, There were bullet holes around the place. And you realize this is probably not the safest place to be, at least the airport. And so you finally get in your vehicle and you get to your hotel. And it's a nice hotel and it's relatively safe. And this is, I should say, this is an unbedded journalist position. You're not going to be attached to the military. So you're just there as a journalist reporting on your own. So you go to the hotel, it's got blast walls, which are 10, 15 feet high, but security's tight. You're checking into this nice hotel, and you're upstairs, and all of a sudden, you hear an IED blast. And once you've heard one, there's no mistake that it's a a backfire or it's just, you know, a little explosion somewhere. And then when you walk out to the front lobby and you get outside, you realize you could just smell that You could see the dust. You could hear people screaming. You could hear cars and sirens. And then you get outside your fence and you walk towards that area and you realize, you know, you're in a country that's at war.
0: You mentioned dust and a distinct smell. What was the smell?
1: The smell is... It's, chemicals that are put in, ex- in explosives, you know, um, and it, sometimes it's described as, it's the HME, the homemade explosives, you know, it could be the nitrate, but once you smell that, you know, it's an IED blast. And the dust is, everything has this really fine powder as like a talcum powder. It's a very fine dust that's just floating in the air.
0: Did you fear for your life while you were there?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that's a natural thing. Um, For me personally, it once I start taking photos, um, I tend to forget what's going on and I'm concentrating on trying to move my camera through a scene. Um, But yeah, you, you fear for your life. I mean, you're, you're a soft target. They know that journalists are unarmed. Um, not always maybe, you know, they they lack the military training. Um, so that, yeah, that concern's always there.
0: You wrote that that experience um, changed your behavior back home. You said you were always bracing for an attack. Um, do you, Do you still experience that or how did you overcome it?
1: I think I think there's, I mean, it changes us um, in ways that you now realize that you picked up while you're overseas. Like, um, it was pointed out to me that when I park my car, I immediately get out of the car. I don't sit in the car. Mm-hmm. And for most people, you don't think about that. But when you're overseas and you park your vehicle, you... Get out right away because you don't want to be a sitting target and i'm constantly reminded by friends who ride with me you know like man you parked your car and you bolt out and it's, it's just you don't want to ever be caught sitting in a car
0: despite all that chaos you you made some really beautiful and, and powerful images um while in afghanistan and also back here in san diego you know following service members who had returned home um some alive some not What photos, you know, from your years of covering this stand out to you?
1: There was a young Marine, uh, Raz, who allowed me to follow him as he was going through rehab uh, at Balboa Medical Center, Naval Balboa Medical Center. Um, He was a double uh, amputee, lost both his legs in an IED blast. And I was very amazed at how he was so aggressive with his recovery, meaning he was moving faster than the medical people would allow him to move. He was ready for his beginning prosthetics when they said, you're not ready. And then he was ready for full length prosthetics when they would tell him he's not ready yet. I mean, this was a young Marine who wanted to get on with his life. and do his rehab as fast as he could possibly do and resume a life away from the hospital.
0: Have you checked in with him over the years?
1: You no, know, some, some of the Marines you, you, you'll see in social media. And then some of them, um, you're friends with them on Facebook and, uh, we'll say hello and hi. And then, uh, one or two will reach out and call each other, uh, see how we're doing. Um, but I think even with the Marines, I don't think Marines will ever forget their experiences or the camaraderie they met there. But I think so many of them are ready to move on to the next chapter of their lives, and I think the same thing happens for folks like me. You know, you. You're ready to just move on and leave it all there. And should that time come, you know, where they want to send me back, I'm sure I'll I'll be eager and wanting to go. But it's it's it has its moments.
0: What do you think you've learned from this? You know, your seven trips to Afghanistan. Um, I know you've been to Pakistan before right after 9/11 to cover tensions there. You know, you've seen a lot of things that uh, other civilians have not seen so what have been your takeaways
1: you know i mean you, you do a lot of growing up in a very very short time i mean you 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 look back at your life and there are things maybe you put on the back burner or things you took for granted and you no longer you no longer do that um you you try and live in the moment um you try and be in the moment when you're with friends um i take you know exceptional value in my family and with my friends you know i i hold it i hold it very close to me i, I it's what It's what I hang on to when I'm overseas. Coming home, it just makes it that much more better to see and experience.
0: Now let's turn to opinion. Charles T. Clark is a columnist at the UT writing about the intersection of civic life and identity. Charles, what were you feeling um, earlier today when you heard that the jurors had reached a consensus so quickly?
2: Well, initially I was kind of surprised. Um, I I kind of had anticipated that it would stretch into the week. At least that was kind of the impression I had gotten reading different things. Um, But when they announced that they had a verdict already, I had a very difficult time imagining there was any way that it would be an acquittal. Um, I could see some charges that maybe with that quick of a turnaround, they didn't. Um, but at the very least, I feared he would be found guilty of something.
0: And so when the judge read, um, you know, the juror's decision earlier today, what was your reaction?
2: You know, I, I was very numb, to be quite honest. Um, I think that I don't know. I I think going in there was a part of me that thought maybe you would, I don't know, feel something. I know there's other people who maybe felt joyous or relieved. And I I think where I kind of was at was I was like, okay, um, you know, I I don't really know what this means beyond this. Um, I, I think, at least for me personally, kind of the two things I kept coming back to were one, like, this isn't justice. You can never really get justice in a case like this, right? Like Gianna Floyd is seven years old and she's never going to hug her dad again. Um, So I think for me, that was a big part of why no matter, you know, even with them finding guilty of everything, I I didn't feel like, um, I was going to be necessarily satisfied, so to speak. Um, But beyond that, I think I thought of it more in the lens of, you know, as we're coming up on the the year anniversary of him being murdered, um, you know, I, I found myself just thinking how much has really changed. And I think kind of the question I had was, you know, if it weren't for the fact that there was a nine minute, 28 second video of him being murdered in cold blood, would we have even gotten this, right? And what does it say that so many of us were waiting with bated breath because we didn't know if this guy would be found guilty for something he clearly had done and he was clearly guilty of. And I think that's a real indictment of, you know, our justice system and certainly how we handle um, police misconduct, right? That all of us were kind of like, what's going to happen on something that should have been so um, just clear, Um, especially with what, frankly, a porous defense his defense attorney offered um so yeah i, I think that was kind of where i was at was i think the the way i kind of uh phrased it when i kind of wrote out my feelings was that i'm not really sure how much has changed but i'm trying to convince myself to be hopeful um and i i certainly hope that this that people don't get the false impression that this ends with this verdict
0: um, you know, I, I saw a Newsweek story that said, actually, since George Floyd's murder, uh, you know, we can now say 181 black people have been um, killed by police since then. So, I mean, do you think this verdict will make a difference? I mean, those things happened. There hadn't been a verdict. Now that there is, will it make a difference?
1: Um,
2: it could. Um, I'm very... I don't like pessimism in general, um, but I am very suspicious of kind of the reaction I've seen from certain elected officials who are trumpeting it as if this is a sign of change. Because I do think there is a certain portion of the population who, one, right, the default before all of this was they didn't want to believe that this was happening, period. Um, just america in general right we like to put on these blinders and pretend that we're some kind of racially tolerant country that has made all these strides where we've made some strides but newsflash folks this country isn't all that different from it was when my dad was born before the civil rights act um so returning to your original question as i kind of digress there i i i really don't know i i hope it will be i worry that it won't. Um, and to your point, and I appreciate you bringing up that statistic, because that was one thing I kind of spoke about in my column. Was just that. Think about all the people, just even the high-profile ones, right? That were killed around the same time as George Floyd. You know, Breonna Taylor is obviously one of the biggest ones. I think most people are familiar of. She didn't get any, you know, justice to any degree. Um, And there's so many other people like that, right? Or how many people didn't have the fortune that there was a 17 year old there to film it all in horrific detail um, and essentially publicly shame people into doing the right thing. Or even, you know, beyond that, right? Wasn't it just last week that we found out, right? that Chicago police and the Cook County prosecutor just blatantly lied about, you know, the circumstances of when they shot a 13 year old boy. Um, So with all that being said, I'm I'm very uh, suspicious to see how this goes. Um, I think I think people need to be real honest with themselves that this isn't about Derek Chauvin or a few bad apples or any of that. the real issue here is that there is something fundamentally wrong with policing in this country, and it didn't just show up it's always been there. Um, and frankly, it was probably intentionally designed that way if you look back at the history of how policing originated. Um, and until we get real honest with ourselves about that until we stop letting police unions try to lampoon any kind of reform as an attack on cops. Um, Until a certain subset of our political discourse doesn't, I'm not sure how how much progress can really be made.
0: Almost a year ago, when George Floyd died, you wrote an opinion piece, which was unusual for you at the time because you had been a political reporter. But you basically said, you know, like as a as a black man, it's painful to stand by and see this happen once again. Uh, it was really powerful. It was really beautifully um, written. I haven't revisited it, but did that like represent a turning point for you in your career? You're now a columnist. Was that when that conversation started, or just you know, like what what did that moment represent for you? Um.
2: Well, that's a good question. I uh, I, I think. You know, for me personally, that hit a lot of chords. Um, you know, not only as a black man, but as a black man who spent more than a decade of his life in Minneapolis um, and still has a lot of family there and friends who were right there for all of it. You know, my my cousin was on uh, one of the bridges when there was a guy who drove a car into a bunch of the protesters and things like that. So it was all very um, close to home. Um and when it happened i think i was having a very difficult time processing it and i you know frankly without the papers permission kind of just went and wrote something and published it on medium just to kind of get it off my chest um and i do think from i guess a professional perspective it did change the dynamic for me quite a bit um really in kind of how i fundamentally viewed journalism as a craft. And I actually think that's probably true for most newsrooms. Um, if they're being real honest, I think it it forced a lot of them, um, us included, to get pretty introspective about how we write about police um, and race. And, you know, I think for me, it was one of those things where I was, you know, given how close I was to it, I thought it would be insincere and frankly, irresponsible um, as a black person with a platform to not just be honest and speak about what it is really like for a lot of people who look like me. Um, Whereas frankly, traditional journalism, uh, they tend to want you to be quiet about that stuff, right? Any of the personal stuff, they don't want to come into your work, Um, which, you know, that's a whole other rant about kind of the origins of journalism and why they may have that misconception that that's the greatest way to do the craft, but I hope that answers the question.
0: Yeah, well, we should talk about that another time. Um, but I wanted to say, yeah, kudos to you, you know, because uh, now as an organization, we are looking at that. You know, I'm on part of a committee, I'm sure that was in- inspired by um, you and, and that essay, uh, looking at advocacy and expression, you know, and like when it's okay um, to stand up on matters of con- conscience. So, um, yeah, thank you for that just as a final question, you know, you've, you've, um, you've expressed a lot of skepticism, you know, here, um, again, you're not sort of elated just because we're having to have this conversation, but, you know, locally, uh, what, what do you hope to see happen in San Diego?
2: Uh, yeah, you know, there's, there's quite a few things that kind of spring to mind. Um, you know, one, I, to be honest, was deeply troubled. Um, you know, when, when Mayor Gloria rolled out his announcement for police reforms, I, I even wrote about it. Initially, it gave me a pause when I saw something talking about how he had consulted with the unions about the proposals. Um, the fact that he just put forth a budget that would increase the police spending, um, to be quite honest, makes me even more skeptical of some of the things that he's spoken about and how serious he is about, frankly, putting his foot down here and and kind of demanding more. Um, You know, I I think kind of the big issues that I look at, at least with policing, you know, is one, they talk about, uh, you know, essentially the stops where they, you know, pretext stops where they use it as, you know, I would say unjustly to essentially investigate a matter before there's anything really... For them to happen too. And they defend it as a crime solving tool. Um, I think there's a lot of debate to be had about whether that's legitimate, and if anything, I think it puts more people at risk and increases the likelihood um, that something horrific happens during a traffic stop. Um, I also think just generally, I would be real curious, given some of the videos and things we've seen of how law enforcement personnel behave at traffic stops if they reevaluate kind of their policies and procedures there, right? Because even on some things that are innocuous, I would argue that they seem to heighten the tension almost immediately. Um, and, you know, I don't think that's necessarily their intent there, but I do think that's the end result. And, you know, whenever people email me talking about, you know, black people need to respect police more, um, or something to that effect, which drives me up the wall. I point out one, that they're not the ones who chose to be public servants, law enforcement did. Um, But two, I I think there is a very real issue where law enforcement, whether intentionally or not escalates a lot of situations and puts people on edge where they become a lot jumpier and maybe respond in a way where it's more of a flight or fight response.
0: You can find these stories online at SanDiegoUnionTribune.com. I'm Christy Totten, host of the San Diego News Fix. Thanks for listening.